This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Welcome to the MCU Lorecast. I'm Captain Chenko. And I'm Psych88. Uh, today, we're going to be going into easily one of my favorite films in the MCU. Today, we're talking about Captain America, The Winter Soldier. And in case it's your first time here, this is not a spoiler-free zone. So, Genesis? If you're looking for a spoiler-free zone, sorry, lovelies, you are in the wrong place. Thanks, Jen. Like I said, this, it's probably one of my favorite films in all of the MCU. Actually, it probably takes the number one spot for me. Because if you strip away everything superhero and Marvel, this ultimately just becomes a really awesome spy action thriller. And I can get behind that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, when you approached me with the idea to do this podcast, this was the movie you kind of wouldn't stop talking about. So, yeah, this is your favorite one. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, uh, for me, it's it gets the, it's got this awesome cast. It's got a great score. It has a good pace to it, and I ultimately liked the story that it that it told. And I'm excited to dig into this one because it's got easily some of the best action sequences and fight scenes across the MCU, even taking into account films that have come out very recently. So I'm excited to jump into this one. So this one takes place a couple of years after the Battle of New York, and our captain has settled in D.C. He's working a little bit with S.H.I.E.L.D., trying to jump back in, serve, and he's adjusting to modern life. While he's out running the D.C. monuments, which I my one of my nitpicks about this movie is there is no way... He could have passed by the monuments that he passed by and passed Sam like four different times uh, <laughs> and then have it be the distance that Sam says that he ran. It's just it's not possible. Someone I'm sure on YouTube has calculated how erroneous this scene was. But I got the feeling Sam was being um, facetious yeah. or sarcastic. So, so I don't think any of the values he tossed, which I think it was like 13 miles in 30 minutes or something. Um, I don't think any of that was for real. He was just kind of mad that he was getting lapped. But I mean, it it's Captain America, though. You're probably not going to stand up athletically unless you are also a super soldier. And the cool thing about Sam is he's just a guy. Mm hmm. Anyway, so he and he and Steve have a little bit of veteran banter and, you know, a little bit of bonding. And Sam tells him that if he wants to make him look awesome in front of the girl at his job, he should stop in. <laughs> Only for Steve to get picked up by an extremely smoking hot Corvette Stingray with an even more smoking hot widow inside. 
Yeah. I mean, that car was sexy, but man, did Widow get a glow up on this one. She had the hair and the outfit and the just the, the awesome. She was fantastic. I loved that they brought in Widow for this movie because it did have that dark spy action thriller vibe to it. And who better to help Captain America with his spy espionage than the spy? Yeah, of course. Also helps that she's a very attractive redhead. <laughs> yeah. They zoom off to a mission to recover some intel from the Lumerian star. Well, Cap doesn't know that yet. He thinks that this is a standard rescue op. Uh, we get to see a little bit of team planning with the strike team, which, as we know, they love their acronyms. So strike's going to be <laughs> the special tactical reserve for international key emergencies. Yeah. It's also uh, a mobile game <laughs> called Strike Force. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is a team led by Agent Brock Rumlow, who later becomes Crossbones. He's played by the fantastic Frank Grillo, who I will not shut up about throughout the rest of this uh, movie synopsis. Because he comes back a couple of times and his scenes are just awesome. <clears throat> Jack Rollins, mm -hmm. who is a very minor role, uh, played by Callan Mulvey. People might know him best from movies like Zero Dark Thirty and 300, Rise of an Empire. Their whole mission is to free the hostages aboard this uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. ship, and they're being held by Georges Batroc, who his comic counterpart is going to be a guy called Batroc the Leaper. His power is super jumping and kicking with a basis <laughs> in the martial art of Savat. Le Savat Box, French kickboxing, whatever you want to call it, very flashy, very jumpy, definitely fits the comic vibe. Uh, and he's played by George St. Pierre, who happens to be my favorite mixed martial arts fighter ever. So to say that this movie hit all the right notes for me, for sure, for sure. <laughs> We're starting off strong. Evidently. The, the, the mission kind of progresses with Steve just absolutely wrecking guys off of the deck of the ship. He's knocking them out, throwing them overboard, uh, straight up knifing a guy through the hand before you can pull an alarm. And then Rumlow parachutes in, shoots one guy, and says, yeah, Cap, you're looking pretty defenseless there. We get some more <laughs> amazing Widow action with her taking out a sub-deck of sailors and that very awesome, hey, sailor, <laughs> the Man. sass. Yeah, they upped the sass. Like, the Russos knew what the hell they were doing mm -hmm. with, with this character, with all of them, but yes. Yes. Hey, sailor. Knocks the guy out with a pull to the face. Ugh. Anyway, this leads us uh, to the, the hostages getting sprung by the strike team and getting let out. But uh, Rumlow lets Cap know that there are still hostiles in play. They have not taken out Batrock, which he's not to be reckoned with because they were briefed in their mission that he's got a reputation for maximum casualties, which is big fancy talk for he likes to kill people. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> we end up with this really awesome fight between Cap and Batroc. And you can definitely see that having the influence of a real fighter added an element of grit to the combat scenes like we have not seen them yet. I think this movie upped the ante with what the expectations were. In my opinion, this is one of the strongest performing Phase 2 films because of all of the elements that went into it. And this is no exception. Um, George St. Pierre did 
to my knowledge, most of his own stunts. A lot of it was done on wire rigging, and some of the more unbelievable acrobatics were probably done by stuntmen. But because of the nature of these close combat fights, a lot of the stunt work fell to the actors in this movie in particular. And I really have to hand out props to the cast and to the stunt department of this movie, because they did a fantastic freaking job. Yeah, they did. Cap starts out with his shield fighting Batroc. We get to see uh, Batroc's mastery of the art of Savat. It's very different from Muay Thai, where Muay Thai really relies heavily on um, angled strikes, elbows, knees. Uh, Savat has a lot more jumping elements and a lot more uh, round kicks and a little bit less hand striking. It really is more of a uh, kicking art. There is still striking, and we get to see a showcase of the striking a little bit later. Uh, he enters with a flying sidekick, which if you've ever had, like, GSP's a big guy. He's probably 205-ish during the filming of this movie. You ever had 205 pounds fly out of the left side of the screen at you? Um, that's gonna hurt. <laughs> so Cap is noticeably staggered by this. He follows it up with a brutal front kick to the shield, knocking Cap back even further. And this is exactly what you want to do when you're fighting someone with a shield. If you can get them staggered and get them to drop the angle of that shield, you can get up and around it in order to nullify the advantage that they have. Uh, we see a very, uh, you know, we see an extremely uh, close, uh, like, flipping kick that comes extremely close to Cap's family jewels. Uh, they're both pretty much in a split, and Cap's looking at his foot down there between his thighs like, oh, crap. Yeah, Super Soldier or not, that one would hurt. Yeah. We also then see some extremely classic GSP. If you know anything about his fighting career, he's kind of famous for making the Superman punch a technique that was considered viable in the cage because he could use it very effectively. So we see... Superman punch to front kick, another Superman punch to a high kick in a flurry, and then Cap retaliates with a shield smash that would have made Leonidas jealous and slams Batroc backwards. It helps that shield is made out of, you know... Vibranium. That thing does not obey the laws of physics. (laughs) So Batroc then goads Cap. He kind of prods him. He goes, I thought you were more than a shield. And Cap goes, all right. We'll fight. I'll fight you like this. So he puts his shield on his back, drops his helmet, and he says, let's see. And they have a good old fashioned hand-to-hand fight. It's very short-lived, but we do still get to see uh, a lot of GSP's signature moves on, on, on display. I like that they had Cap drop his helmet, because if, they, if he no longer has that shield as his uh, advantage in that fight, he's going to need all of his peripheral vision. In high-level combat, uh, especially in something, this is very akin to a mixed martial arts fight because they're varying up the styles of punching and the, adding in the kicks and everything. You want your peripheral vision. About 80% of the time, if you're sparring or you're fighting someone, you want to keep very high accuracy in your peripheral because you can anticipate where a fight's coming from, where a strike is coming from just by reading the different twitches in your opponent's muscle. But you can't be so hyper-focused on that one spot on their body that you ignore everything else. So I liked to see that a lot. Cap lands this amazing right cross hook elbow combination right on the chin of uh, of Batroc. 
followed by two absolutely brutal front kicks. One to the knee, which, like, when you hear that snap, that is very real. If you've ever heard a shin bone get kicked, that is exactly what it sounds like. And Batroc's reaction of screaming in pain and clutching his leg is absolutely what would happen, especially if it sounded mm-hmm. like that. Cap's a big dude to be kicking you like that. Uh, followed up by a very unrealistic, if I'm going to nitpick anything, backflip jumping wheel kick to the head. Uh, if you were able to land that in a fight, you're not getting up from it. And if you were crazy enough to try to land that in a fight, major props to you. Personally, would have probably just gone high with a round kick, but if that's my only nitpick from this fight scene, so be it. Batrock gets off, tries to shake it off, and then he gets slammed through a metal door where we pick up with what our girl Natasha has been up to when she's supposed to be helping out. She has another mission. Yeah. Turns out the spy is doing spy stuff. Mm, go, go figure. figure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So she's taking, she's backing up the data from this ship for Fury. And she and Steve get into it about the mission parameters. And she says, well, you know, I had a different mission. You did your job beautifully. Let's go. Batroc wasn't as knocked out as Cap thought, or he shook it off really quick. I guess that's that UFC fighter grit speaking. Because he launches a grenade at them. And they have to dive into another part of the room with Cap's shield shielding them to avoid an explosion. Nat says, that one's on me. And Steve's like, yeah, yeah, it is. As he's covered in soot and very angry. Yeah. I mean, I would be too. I mean, you imagine you are leader of a team. Doesn't matter what kind of team, combat or accountants, what, you know, whatever. And you got someone do off doing their own thing or under the direction of someone else that's not a part of your like yeah sure you may answer to your boss but for whatever reason your boss has gone around your back and spoken to one of your other people to do something else while they're supposed to be helping you out he's justified Mm -hmm. in my opinion to be upset about this complete breach of trust yeah he does confront fury about it too he storms up to fury's office livid And says, you know, I can't be expected to lead a mission when the people that I am supposed to be commanding have missions of their own. Go off cap. He is standing up for himself here like none other. Fury, you know, he says that Natasha simply had another mission because she's comfortable doing everything. And he knew that Cap would not be comfortable stealing that intel back from, you know, Steve's not really satisfied with that answer. And Fury ends up saying, well, you know what? I do share things, and shows him something extremely concerning. If you're Captain America, who has literally fought a war against uh, oppressive regimes, uh, Fury takes him down to see three brand new state-of-the-art helicarriers. And the whole agenda with them is that they're going to eliminate a lot of threats before they happen. And Steve kind of goes, I thought the punishment came after the crime what about due process and fury's like well you know with these times we can't wait that long oh boy yeah it's too slow our boy does not like it no and i don't think i like it either because cap says it best he's like you're gonna hold a gun to everyone on planet earth and call it protection that's not freedom that's fear and 
he's 100% right about that. You know, Fury says, this is this is the future. This is where we're going. We've got to eliminate pe- the terrorists and the, and the troublemakers and the crimes and the dangers before they even happen. Yikes. Rogers kind of storms off after that. He's not a fan at all, to say the very least. No. And then Fury goes back up to his office to try to decrypt that data that they recovered from the Lumerian star. Surprise! He can't. It's encrypted, and he can't break through it. By him, nonetheless. He's like, I I don't remember doing that. Where did I sign off on this? Hmm. So he's suspicious, to say the least. Uh, He goes up a couple of floors and tries to enlist the help of his good buddy Alexander Pierce, played by... The amazing Robert Redford. He goes to his friend to try to tell him that he doesn't feel right about Project Insight. He wants Pierce to delay the project so that he can do a little bit of investigating. Because he's a little sketched out about everything going on with it. So Pierce tells him this is this isn't an easy thing. This is uh, you know, this is a subcommittee. This is gonna take time. And Fury says, Well, you know. If this turns up to be nothing, it was nothing. But if it turns out to be something, you're going to be really glad that those boats have not sailed. As such, uh, Pierce kind of jives him and he goes, Oh, you know, I'll do it. But make sure Iron Man goes to my daughter's birthday party. Gets him to, yeah, gets him to make one of his superhero buddies make an appearance for, you know, personally. And then, you know, immediately following that meeting... He's out, he's trying to get up with, meet up with Hill at some point, and we have a classic act one chase scene, uh, rush through DC as, as Fury comes under fire from men pretending to be, uh, DC patrol. Big old firefight happens. I love his argument with his car. Like, like, what is it broken? Initiate vertical takeoff. Broken. <laughs> Evasive maneuvers. Autopilot broken. What's not broken? Air conditioning. Fully functional. <laughs> it was the perfect blend for me of, of funny and serious because he is not doing hot. His supercar has been bashed to hell. Uh, but it still gives us a moment to laugh as he laments the issues with technology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he has that same fight that we all have with our uh voice activated you know devices and whatever. But on his level, it's life or death. But it's funny because we all deal with it, right? Yeah. We then get our first glimpse of our baddie because who is sent after Nick Fury to complete the job but one Winter Soldier? He's got the grenade launcher and the mask and the scary black outfit and the creepy cool villain music oh yeah like as soon as you as soon as you thought fury was in the clear they pick up that uh i guess it was string string movement or whatever as soon as that music hits you know something's about to happen that is very very bad so that riff that you're talking about is actually the screams of the winter soldier super distorted and extended and made part of the soundtrack Wow. Okay, well, obviously I don't have an ear for music, but damn. Yeah, that uh, that really sets the tone. It's like a combination of his screams when he's getting brainwashed and the scream of Bucky falling from the train. Huh. Spoiler alert, guys. We're going to find out some more stuff about the Winter Soldier later. Well, we'll get there. 
Yeah, we'll definitely get there. Somehow Fury manages to escape utilizing an advanced blowtorch <laughs> by the roof of his car and like <laughs> lightsaber. Yeah. I don't know about you. I know when roads get built up around here, there's like six feet of, you know, dirt and rebar and concrete and everything. Where else did that gets all of that go up. when he cut and, himself through the roof of his car? Yeah, because the for people who don't know, the car's upside down on the street, but he cuts through the roof and the like street? four feet of freaking street. And I'm like, how? Unless he got insanely you... lucky and happened to be on top of a manhole cover and could escape into the sewers, which, like, props to you, man. If you can make your car flip over after being launched by a grenade and then land perfectly on top of a manhole cover, you deserve to get away. <laughs> right. Yeah, he gets away, and we, we meet back up with Cap. He meets up with his next-door neighbor for a hot minute, uh, and then he goes into his apartment, but he doesn't go in through the front door because apparently he left some music on, and he knows he didn't leave any music on. So he comes in through the window, and he has another nice little spy chat with Fury right before Fury takes three to the chest through a wall. Yikes. <laughs> and talk about good damn aim <laughs> the neighbor runs back in and pulls a radio out of her skirt and lets everyone know that foxtrot is down foxtrot is down she's a secret agent for shield she's agent 13 and mm-hmm. i'm sure you're going to have a little bit of comic history for that character in our second oh, part yes, of our I show do. so we'll talk about her later anyway she rushes in to help fury and tells rogers that She's been keeping an eye on him, and then he tells that tells her to let S.H.I.E.L.D. know that he's in pursuit of the shooter, and he takes off. We get this awesome chase scene through office buildings and through walls. He ricochets off of walls, which, that's fair. He's running very fast, and I appreciate seeing that physics does actually affect the world of Captain America. Yeah, they, it's a, it's kind of an homage to his first chase scene, right? Right after he got transformed and he does those big wide turns and he doesn't control himself and he goes through that bridal store, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now he's figured out how to utilize his mass correctly, his momentum correctly, and he's got a vibranium shield. So he's going to use that to bounce himself where he needs to keep going. Mm-hmm. That is that tactic brain thinking and also learn... It's that learning curve. We get to see him figure out how to use his body correctly. And that's awesome. Mm -hmm. The Winter Soldier ultimately escapes after being chased across the rooftops. Cap throws his shield and he needs his brown pants when the Winter Soldier just reaches out and snatches (laughs) his shield out of midair with his metal arm. (laughs) Yeah. If I were the Winter Soldier in that instance, I think I would have just armed that shield and taken off with it. But he throws it back at Cap, knocking him back several feet, and then, you know, makes his great escape. He, you know, by the time Cap gets back over to the edge of that rooftop, the Winter Soldier is gone. We catch back up with our our poor guy, Nick Fury, at the hospital during his surgery to try to take the bullets out of his chest. But he's flatlining. They try to revive him a couple of times with a couple good electric shocks, but he's, he's not picking up a pulse. Maria Hill has arrived on scene to recover the body, and Natasha's at the hospital too, where Steve catches up with her. And she wants to know why Fury was in Steve's apartment. 
But Steve's a terrible liar. And she <laughs> knows that he's lying. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the strike team has moved in and they're all there and they're telling Cap that he's wanted back at S.H.I.E.L.D. And uh, Cap is saying, just give me a second, you know, chill out. He stashes the flash drive uh, that Fury gave him right before he was slugged in the chest. He stashes it in a vending machine behind two cases of Hubba Bubba. Um, hinging the secret information that Fury was willing to die over on two people not wanting gum. <laughs> I mean, have you been to a vending machine and seen the gum? I feel like that's probably the, the least utilized aspect of the vending machines, to be honest. That's fair. Uh, Cap gets summoned to the Triskelion to talk to Pierce. And he sees his neighbor walking out of that office. Hey, neighbor. <laughs> he goes in to talk to Pierce, and Pierce explains how he and Fury go way back, how Nick saved his daughter's life, and how he's have never had cause to regret promoting Fury to his position that he's in now. And asks Cap why Fury was in his apartment and why he was the last person to see Nick alive. Um, Cap doesn't really want to answer that. Fury had warned him not to trust anyone, and he's starting to think that that might include his, his, uh, dead friend's not-so-best buddy, Alexander. So he says not, he says, you know, Fury told me not to trust anyone, and that's all he said. And he leaves. He doesn't, uh, he's not gonna make it very far, though. And we're gonna lead into probably... One of my favorite fight scenes in film, period. Yeah, by all means. The floor is yours for probably the next ten minutes, guys. So, as Cap states before the fight starts, does anyone want to get off? I don't want to zoom through it, but I also don't want to linger too long. The main thing I'm going to say is, if you've never seen this movie, it's it's too late for you. Go watch this fight scene on YouTube. Just go watch the movie. Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna dive into this one. Uh, this scene is the scene that I come back to every time I watch a fight scene in another film. I want every other movie to have a fight scene on par with the elevator scene from Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Uh, they packed like between six and ten dudes at any given point during the filming of this scene into this elevator, and they filmed it over six days. They couldn't bring in the stunt guys for very much of it because of the close quarters and the tight shots that they needed to get. So for probably 90% of this scene, you're seeing Chris Evans, Frank Grillo, Callan Mulvey, and all of the guys playing the kind of unnamed strike agents in this elevator. Um, there's an interview floating around on the internet somewhere where Frank Grillo talks about filming this scene and he said, you know, I grew up boxing. I like to throw punches. I was actually throwing punches. Um, Grillo, Grillo put on like 30 pounds of muscle for this movie. So he's like 180, 190 pounds at, at this point during this, this fight scene. Evans is a big dude. He, he was probably as Captain America right around the 205 mark. Like he was jacked for this film. And Kellen Mulvey's an action star. So, and, and then of course the stunt guys are going to be like, pretty built, pretty in shape. To say that they were all black and blue and covered in ice at the end of filming this fight scene is probably an understatement. I think they all needed a couple of days at the spa after shooting this. 
especially if they were just beating the crap out of each other for six days straight. Um, for part of this fight scene, Cap has his arm electromagnetically attached to one of the walls, and he takes out five or six dudes just utilizing kicks and his one free arm. At one point, he finally does get his arm demagnetized from the wall, takes out another guy, and then Frank Grillo's character Brock Rumlow stands up with the two uh, taser batons, and he goes, whoa, big guy. <laughs> and I mean, fair. He just watched his buddies get plowed through by Captain America. And he still has the guts to stand up and say, I'm going to still try to fight this guy. Cap eats a couple of good shocks from those taser batons, but I've got to think that his Captain America suit is enhanced in some way, uh, where he's not feeling the total brunt of that. It's still got to suck. And then he yeah. just grabs uh, Rumlow around his middle and throws him against the ceiling. Uh, Rumlow had said before he attacked, you know, I just want you to know, Cap, this isn't personal. And Cap, like an absolute G, just, you know, he he's looking down at all this carnage and all these dudes he's just knocked out laying on the floor of the elevator, breaks his handcuff, and he goes, it kind of feels personal. They all should have got out. They all should have got out. <laughs> they had their chance. He tried. He, he could tell that it was coming, too. Because everyone was tense. The elevator just kept filling up with the strike agents. And he's like, they're putting all the big dudes in here with me. I see Rollins. I see Rumlow. This guy's sweating profusely. I I think, like, one of the big things that he, like, the, the last big tip-off was when I think Rollins says, like, two records. And Evans rolled his eyes, like... Like, okay, yeah, <laughs> there's like, no reason for you to be going to records. You're full you of are, crap. They are, <laughs> you're just telling the elevator to go somewhere. Uh, so after he absolutely plows through all of these elite agents in a very small space, again, major props to everyone who shot this scene. Incredible fight scene. Chef's kiss. Amazing. He does probably the dumbest thing I've ever seen in film. And I know that the shield has these incredible superhero movie properties it is the embodiment of movie science but he breaks out the side glass of this elevator jumps out of the elevator probably like 40 feet onto the glass roof of another building crashes through probably falls another 30 or 40 feet onto solid concrete and then he just kind of like gets up shakes it off and runs off i mean like he he acts like it might have hurt a little bit and I don't care that the shield is vibration proof or whatever broken movie logic you want to use. That man has a broken clavicle, at least. I don't know. I believe it more than the opening scene where Cap jumped out of the uh, uh, jet without a parachute and just uh, straight dives into the water from 300 feet up. And then he's magically dry when he gets onto the ship. <laughs> One, he's magically dry when he gets the top of that sure that's just insane but also you hit water water from that height hell even less than that is like hitting concrete and he didn't use the shield to break his fall for that one so i have less issue with this scene of going out the elevator utilizing his shield to absorb impact than i do him taking out the ship at the start you know that's fair i'll give you that <laughs> but it's still it's a little ridiculous uh, should also be noted that, you know, they try to shut down the, the exit 
and pulls off the garage. But Cap manages a daredevil stunt uh, through the through the closing gates, jumps on the bridge, and you know I I've got a little thing in my notes here, and I think it's I think it's worth mentioning. In a later film, Cap mentions that he can't afford a place in Brooklyn. I think he could if he would stop destroying motorcycles. <laughs> He's racking up some bad karma. This man has wrecked more motorcycles than I've wrecked cars. And he just up and throws his motorcycle into the turbine of the Quinjet that's trying to take him out. Uh, then jumps onto the Quinjet, takes it out with a couple of acrobatic flips, gives us a very gratuitous superhero landing, and then runs off. He goes back to the hospital to try to get his flash drive, only to find Natasha there popping some gum. Yeah, so obviously that didn't pan out the way he wanted it to, but it worked out because it gets him an ally who knows kind of sort of what it means to be on the run from an intelligence agency. So kudos to that. Yeah, they end up, uh, they go to a public place to try to open that flash drive and uh, end up at the Apple store where they have a very funny interaction with Ian. (laughs) He's like, Oh, you know, where are you going? And she, and Natasha just, she plays up Cap's awkwardness because she had to know how uncomfortable he was going to be with this. She goes, oh, we're just looking at a honeymoon destination. And he goes, yeah, we're getting married. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, oh, where are you going? She, He goes, uh, New Jersey, which as a New Yorker must have just killed him. Probably a little bit, <laughs> yes. Ian fangirls over Cap's handsomeness. Calls him a specimen. Um, I was kind of expecting a reenactment of the scene where Peggy reaches out and touches his pecs. We didn't get that. I think it would have been funny. (laughs) And they find out where the information came from, which was a place Cap's pretty familiar with. But first they have to escape the strike team. And I like to see the tactical quick thinking on part of Widow. She... You know, Cap's first instinct is to let let me pick off a couple of the guys on the edges and then we'll make a break for the exit. And she's like, dude, just shut up. Just shut up. You are in an urban environment. We can hide in plain sight. It's fine. Put your arm around me and laugh at something I said. (laughs) And they get past the first set of agents and then they get down an escalator. And she's like, public displays of affection make people very uncomfortable. So kiss me. And he's like, yes, they do make people uncomfortable. And then he gets to kiss Widow. Which, like, I don't know why he's complaining about that. Just shut up and kiss Widow. Cap. <laughs> I think for poor Cap, one, he's still kind of uh, hurting after Peggy, you know, because of everything. But also, he comes, he respects Natasha. You know, she's not just someone you just kiss, right? That's fair. He respects her as who she is. Yeah. And he's got, you know, that... 1930s 40s mentality of treating women well what romantically like what we would like to you know like to think to be right the romanticized uh, you know, respectfully 40s. the romanticized, yeah the romanticized yeah. way not the uh drunken uh rule of thumb domestic abuse numbers that are hidden yeah 1930s and 40s anyway let's pretend that cap would have never considered doing that because he's just such a nice guy right exactly He's he's a true gentleman. Exactly. And in all honesty, I feel like that's what Steve Rogers embodies, is the true gentleman. So you don't just kiss your co-worker that you respect, this even is if fair. she's telling you to. So they eventually do. Rumlow does his part. He's like, oh, okay, they're kissing. I'm going to just uh, I'm gonna look over here. 
<laughs> and then they get past him. She's like, are you still nervous? <laughs> and he's like, mm, that's not the word I would use. It definitely wouldn't be the word I'd use either. No, I don't think so. I, I mean, listen, I'm the one that stated in Iron Man 2 that I would definitely allow the widow to take me down with her thighs. So that being said, Cap steals a truck. Let's just segue off of that one. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll shelf it for a later time. Oh my god. Uh, They're going to New Jersey <laughs> for their honeymoon. But not really. They're going to Camp Lehigh, which is where Cap came from. It's a place where he did his training. He's getting some little flashbacks. And Natasha's basically saying, I think we've been duped. There's nothing here, not even radio waves. But Cap notices something. There's a bunker there that's not where it's supposed to be. It's a munitions bunker. And the regulations state that, <laughs> you know, big time stickler for the rules, probably read all of the rules and regulations of being in the army so that he could enlist, even though he had no chance before getting shot up with a whole lot of super soldier steroids. Yeah, he knows that that's not where it's supposed to be. Opens it up, and they find the SSR, the old... SSR bunker. But not quite. In their hidden bunker, there's another hidden bunker. Natasha uses her secret superphone to scan the keypad, get the combination, nails it on the first try. And then they go down the elevator to find this really freaky old space. She's curious about the picture of uh, Peggy on the wall, but Steve's not forthcoming with the information about her. And they find a computer, but not just any computer. They're standing mm -hmm. inside a brain. And whose brain, you might ask? But the brain of one Arnim Zola, a scientist we saw in the first Captain America movie, in a new, weirder form. He stalls for time, and there's a bomb inbound for them while they're talking to Zola. But he reveals that he's been working on something, and that Hydra has been growing inside of S.H.I.E.L.D. since Captain America took him hostage, and then he was forgiven and brought in to be useful tactical intel for S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, that backfired on you. And in a big twist, Cap finds out that about half of S.H.I.E.L.D. is compromised by Hydra, and the Insight Helicarriers are going to take out all of Hydra's enemies to start a new world run by Hydra. Yikes. Cap wants to know more about Project Insight, but... Zola says, I'm afraid I've been stalling. We're out of time. And they just have time to jump down into a sub-level and raise Cap's shield to avoid the bombardment of explosives. They hide from the strike agents who are subsequently sent in to search the area and escape, only to show up at the back porch of our guy Sam. Poor Sam. <laughs> when he said that Cap should show up at his job to make him look good in front of a girl that he likes. I don't think that he also meant, hey, show up at my house when you're a fugitive from the law. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, they show up, uh, they get cleaned up. We don't get a gratuitous shirtless Cap scene, but you know, for some people, that white tank top does the job. Good God, the man's biceps are the size of my head. Anyway... <laughs> Sam asks them if uh, if they eat breakfast. He's not sure that Captain America's and Black Widow's eat that sort of thing. And they plan what their next step is. Sam reveals something very interesting about himself. He's not quite a pilot, 
He's got wings. I mean, he never stated he was a pilot. He was part of the pararescues. He just never stated what he really did in that. He was piloting all um, right, but he was piloting a set of crazy looking wings, and he's a little worried about commandeering a pair. He's like, oh, you know, it's uh, it was at like the Pentagon or something behind steel walls and locked gates. And Cap and and, and uh, Widow, they just they're just kind of like, yeah, shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, it, that is so minor. We don't even bother doing it as a bit. Like we just go on and we catch up with our favorite agent and favorite senator, uh, agent. Uh, Sitwell and Senator Stearns, and they are quickly revealed to be Hydra and corrupt and completely without morals or anything. And Yeah, they're having a very casual conversation about Senator Stearns' affair with a much younger lady. We told you we weren't quite done with Senator Stern. We saw him a couple of times in Iron Man, and we told you he was going to come back in a big, kind of dubious way. Well, here he is one of the secret sleeper Hydra agents. Uh, our good buddy Jasper <laughs> gets a little uh, ring on his phone. He picks it up thinking that it's Alexander Pierce. But it's not. It's our guy Sam, our handsome guy in sunglasses. And he says, you know, there's a car around the corner. You're gonna get in. We're gonna go somewhere. You don't really have a choice. Your tie looks really expensive. And it would really suck if something were to happen to it. Like, <laughs> a gaping chest wound well there's like a little red dot sitting right on his chest they've got him so they get him in the car and they they tell him what they're gonna do or they go up to a rooftop and interrogate him <laughs> cap kicks him towards the edge and dangles him over and he's like you're not really gonna throw me rogers that's not your style it's not my style but it is hers spartan kick <laughs> and then just casually like you know that girl, she totally would say yes if you just asked her out. It's like the one with the lip piercing? I'm not ready for that. <laughs> Falcon swoops in, picks him up, and Sitwell's ready to sing, sing, sing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Falcon has the ability to talk to birds. <laughs> uh, so Falcon makes the canary sing, and uh, Sitwell tells him everything. He doesn't really want to. But he does. He spills the tea. <clears throat> Tells them that Insight is a project that takes everyone's past to predict their future. Bank records, SAT scores, voting records, everything. It compiles all of that to say if you're going to figure out if you're going to be a threat for Hydra. And he names a couple of people. You know, Bruce Banner, Stephen Strange, a high school valedictorian, just to name a few. Right. Um, only to suggest things that might come in the future, of course. They load him up in the car, drive off, and they say they explain that they're going to use Sitwell to override some security. And he says, that's a terrible idea. And then they should be singing, Bucky, take the wheel. <laughs> going to kind of blaze through this one because a lot of it takes place in traffic. Traffic, and it's mainly gunfire. I do want to know how... Sam ended up with so little road rash considering he fell out of a moving car and rolled down the freeway. Uh, moving magic, but sure. yeah. We get to see some tactical shooting from Widow. There's one scene where she goes to swing under a bridge and then she stops short, leans up in the shadow, and shoots the eye plate out of the Winter Soldier's mask, which I loved to see. Mm-hmm. And then we get to kind of the big one that I wanted to highlight very briefly because the knife work in the scene between Cap and the Winter Soldier fighting 
at the end of the freeway chase is just incredible. There is a left to right hand knife switch where the knife goes from a forward grip to a backwards grip in a free fall. So he drops the knife in one hand position and then catches the knife in the opposite hand position and then comes forward with a stab. Incredible. And yeah, the uh, yeah, there is a video on uh, YouTube of the behind the scenes stunt work for this particular fight scene. That is Sebastian Stan pulling off that maneuver at speed with a stunt guy. Incredible. Sebastian Stan put in hours of work so that he could do his own stunt work as the Winter Soldier. And it really showed. When an actor takes the time to put in the hours to be able to do their own stunt work, the effect is absolutely stunning because the transitions between the actor acting and the actor doing action scenes is completely seamless because it is the same guy. And this is, beco- this is going to be a theme for specifically Sebastian Stan moving forward. He does a majority of his own stunt work for the character of Bucky Barnes, the Winter Soldier. And I gotta hand out mad props and mad respect for that because to achieve that level of precision, he had to perform that knife maneuver after coming off of a very long sequence of hand-to-hand combat, perform that maneuver, and then jump into yet another sequence of hand-to-hand combat seamlessly in one shot. Absolutely incredible. Good job. Amazing. Yes, that scene made the entire fight sequence for me. Just being able to appreciate the superb knife handling skills and knife work from that part of the film. Amazing. Just amazing. After Cap is kind of, you know, he's a little bit floored to find out that Bucky is the Winter Soldier because during the last bit of that fight scene, he rips the mask off of off the Winter Soldier and when he turns, it's his old pal Bucky and he falters. And in that moment of hesitation, you know, Natasha fires the grenade, the Winter Soldier escapes and then the strike team moves in, puts Cap on his knees and they force him into a truck. Rollins was going to off cap right there in the street, but there's a news helicopter and spectators starting to surround everyone. And it's not really a good image to kill, probably safe to say America's sweetheart. It's not good to execute the guy being America on, you know, national television. Yeah. So they load him up into a truck. He says, not here, not here. And they're on their way to, you know, be killed in an alley and buried somewhere, I'm sure. I mean, that's exactly what they wanted to do. Yeah. Only to be sprung by one Maria Hill, who, you know, electrifies the other guard in the truck, kicks them, kicks him in the face, and then helps them escape custody out of the back of that van. And whoever decided to put the van with the hostages at the back of the caravan, they were just asking for that to happen. They meet up with Fury at his uh, new secret base in the middle of nowhere. He is alive. He survived. He used uh, some superhero science. What was it? Tetradoxin something or another that I don't even keep track of it. Banner tried to develop for stress, but it didn't really work out. But it lowers the heart rate enough to where he could passively be dead. And that's why Hill showed up at the hospital to get him because he wasn't actually dead. Uh, He's got a laundry list of injuries uh, from the attack from the Winter Soldier. And they make a plan to destroy the Insight Helicarriers 
And this is when Cap takes the reins and is going to be giving the orders. He says that everything has to go. They're going to burn it all to the ground. Shield, Hydra, everything. He and Sam have a little scene outside of the base where Sam tells him, you might have to stop your buddy, and it might not be fun. He's not the kind of guy you save. He's the Mm -hmm. kind of guy you stop. And then he asks him if he's going to go in his, you know, joggers and his t-shirt. No, no, he's not. He goes and steals his old suit from the Smithsonian. And while it is not exactly the suit from Captain America, the first Avenger, it's pretty close. We get our obligatory Stan Lee cameo of him as a Smithsonian guard. Man, is he fired. Because that cap suit is naked. Uh, Cap ends up storming S.H.I.E.L.D., takes out the little technician guys, kind of just tells him, son, just don't. (laughs) And he goes over the loudspeaker and gives a rousing speech about how freedom isn't free. The price of freedom's always been high. And Hydra's taken over, and you guys have a choice. You can fight with me, or you can just let this happen. I have a feeling. I know what's going to happen. Murka. <laughs> and they go on to storm the three helicarriers. They have these control chips that they need to place on every single one of them and in order to get control of them so that they can shut down the targeting system and save a whole lot of lives. The first two helicarriers go pretty easy. Cap nails one and uh, Sam manages to get one, but the Winter Soldier makes his presence known at the third one. He takes down Falcon in pretty short order by ripping off his wings and then takes on Cap. Pretty much throws him over the edge. Uh, He does throw a pilot into the turbine of one of the jets too, which is a trope we have seen once before in a Captain America film. Uh Uh-huh. And then they have their big fight on the helicarrier. And there's this very intense scene where... Bucky's just laying into Cap and punching him repeatedly in the face and tells him that he's he's just a mission. And Steve says, then finish your mission because I'm with you till the end of the line. And then Bucky's eyes get real big. <laughs> uh, Steve has completed that part of his mission. He manages to hobble up and get the control blades all set, jumps back down to his buddy Bucky and frees him, and then they fall into the Potomac. Steve gets saved last minute by the Winter Soldier, who is... Definitely having some conflicting feelings. The helicarriers go down because they've targeted all of them at each other to blow them up. And we kind of get a montage towards the end here of all the bad guys going down and Steve in the hospital to the very lovely tune of Marvin Gaye, who, you know, while Sam is present, while Steve is unconscious, he's playing for him. And luckily, our guy Steve is still alive. Because he wakes up and says, on your left. <laughs> yep. Real quick, we've got uh, got two quick in- end credit scenes. One of them I'm sure you're going to have some feelings about, Psych, because we get to see our first appearance of two very important characters. One girl who can control energy and matter, and one who can move really fast. I was actually going to save them for their movie, simply because they'd be easier. Fair enough. But they're in the end credit scene here. And then our second end credit scene is just uh, Bucky at the Smithsonian staring at his own face. He's a little freaked out. I would be too. Yeah, but that's it for the 
plot synopsis, and we've waxed poetic now for quite a bit, so let's jump straight into our mid-break. Alright, welcome to the mid-break, where we talk about all things not related to Marvel Cinematic Universe lore and comic books. Uh, if you stuck with us this long, thank you very, very, very much. We very much appreciate it. You can always help support us by hitting up our Patreon or and or submitting five-star reviews to Spotify or Apple. Uh, we have no new patrons to announce, and we have no reviews, though I do need to get into the habit of announcing patrons at our Tier 4 level, who is Genesis, and she will be joining us for our patron chat here at the end of the month. So thank you very much. Genesis. Thank you, Jen. You are our superhero. And for all the tiers below superhero, you have the ability to vote in the first patron chat vote. It's up on the Patreon if you want to if you want to toss in your vote for what we're going to talk about at the end of the month. Now is your opportunity to. So go for it. Have fun. Uh, let's see here. You can always hit us up on the Robots Radio Discord. Uh, we've got a channel there talk to us we are more than happy to talk to you about any and all comics i was just talking to a guy whose screen name is rip hunter so you know we are welcoming of everything we just prefer one over the other that's all if you're not tired of hearing from us now uh you can find us both on other shows you can find me as one half of the wizarding world Lorecast, which is a harry potter podcast where we deep dive into the magic the universe, and the world of Harry Potter. You can also find me as the host of The Fight Space, which is a martial arts podcast, one of the only female-led martial arts podcasts on the internet. And it's a good time. We talk about fighters, fighting styles, martial arts, and all the movies and media surrounding all of that, as well as the culture and the history and all kinds of news happening in that world. So come check me out on those shows and psych! Where else can they find you? Uh, you can find me on the Mass Effect Blue Shift, a live play tabletop RPG utilizing the fate system to tell the stories of Citadel security agents uh, in Mass Effect. I play the character Jack Parizo, a dashing human agent. We had just done a big session last night. I was up till 2 a.m. You know, getting the recordings and all situated and done. So that episode will go out, I believe, in January. <laughs> uh, since we release, we release episodes uh, the first Friday of every month. So you know, you've got something to look forward to at the start of the next year. You know, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and all that jazz. Hey guys, go listen to Blue Shift because he has been working his butt off on it, and it is awesome and a fun time and i can tell that you guys are having a lot of fun during your sessions oh yeah we have a blast it's great all right let's head out of the mid-break here and talk about some more all right so i've got seven or so characters to talk about here Oddly, like, for a non-origin movie, there are still a lot of things to discuss. I, this is like, I like this too, and I'm happy, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about all these characters, because the Captain America rogues gallery is 
probably one of my favorites. I mean, obviously, a lot of my favorite characters come from um, this grouping, and I'm excited. Well, here's hoping I do it justice. So you've got Georges Bartok, otherwise known as Bartok the Leaper. He was introduced in Tales of Suspense number 65 in March 1966 by Lee and Kirby. Mercenary, and as Shanko had said earlier, master of the French form of kickboxing. His name derives from the word Bactria. It's a classification of amphibians that includes frogs, which is also a slur to play on the stereotype of calling French people frogs. So, like, he's a great rogue for Captain America, but yeah, his... Origins are a little dicey. <laughs> yeah. Which is, it's good to know that Lee was also passing around uh, hateful stereotypes to white people as well. Like, he seems to be an equal opportunity... Offender. Yes. It's not offensive if you offend everyone. Yeah, it's still offensive. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, at least people aren't afraid of an orange. Right. Um, so, he's been, you know, as I've said, he's been around since 1966. On. Fortunately, most of his media portrayals are kind of cartoonish or buffoonish or just he's not even a B-list villain. He's sometimes a C-list villain. He's just he's a guy you have fill, uh, fill in when you don't have anyone else to 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 work with at that time. I think the casting Which is, was perfect, though, for the movie. Oh, yes. Yes. For for the movie here for this, this was fantastic. Uh None of this was played for laughs. He was a mercenary. He killed people. He's to be taken serious. The movie took him serious. The hero took him serious. You know, there wasn't any, I'm going to say, uh, Spider-Man wit being thrown around to to make it comedic in any way. This was a straight-up brawl. It was good. So, for the movie, that's great. He's a comic book villain who's one, he's a one-trick pony. He's a mercenary who kicks people. I, I know in one of his major storylines, which is actually a good transition into Crossbones, I think, uh, in the Bloodstone Hunt storyline, I actually owned that whole run because I wanted the first first cameo and first appearance of Crossbones. Um, he is, like, C-list, even in a story where he is, like, supposed to be one of the main characters, because he needs the support of a completely new villain and, like, three or four other characters Yep. during that whole story. So yes, that does bring us to Brock Rumlow, a.k.a. Crossbones. Introduced in Captain America number 359 in October 1989 as a cameo appearance and number 360 in November as a full appearance by Mark Grunwald and Kieran Dwyer. Crossbones took some time to figure out his moniker as it is within the uh comic book lore he he went with <clears throat> he went with such fantastic names as bingo brock and frag before a mission that put him like up to the red skull um and that went badly for his entire team but the red skull was impressed by him and kind of took him under his wing and he dubbed him crossbones i do want to know though the guy has looked like he looks with the skull and crossbones motif since his first cameo and he didn't instantly call himself crossbones he's 
also he's also had like kind of a weird history with Captain America. Like at one point, didn't he come in contact with the Terrigen Mists and be able to shoot laser beams out of his face? Like <laughs> he's had some weird one-offs. Um, one of them fairly notable. Yeah. Uh, as a as a villain, obviously he's he's got staying power and but again he's just another merc who kills for hire right uh, he will play he plays a very pivotal role in the comic book civil war bit and as a captain america rogue it made sense for that but at the same time that's like his biggest name you know biggest claim to fame is that moment and unfortunately it could have just as easily been like bullseye or anybody yeah someone else anyone <laughs> yeah, else with could. marksmanship could have been that guy it made a lot of sense uh-huh. for it to be rumlo because he has a lot of personal problems with uh captain america i actually think one of my favorite quotes from rumlo in the comics was when he's like you want to know what i hate most about you cap is it your stupid spangly outfit or your wingy helmet or your stupid boots no it's that stupid shield i hate you <laughs> <laughs> yeah on top of a uh, you know general stuff but uh who else do we have we have the reintroduction of armin zola he is now a computer and that is basically what armin zola did in the comic books he created a thing that could map one's brain patterns to a computer they did it for adolf hitler in the comic books and that became the c-list villain hate monger uh, so, you know, he did that for him back in the day, and then he did it to himself to help extend his life beyond the physical sense. And since then, he's basically been a computer virus, much like Ultron. You just can't seem to kill him. He's like a cockroach. <laughs> cockroach Zola. You destroy a body, he uploads his bo- his consciousness to some other electronic device, and he tries to continue doing what he's been doing this entire time which is take over the world for the mcu it would be easily believable that somehow zola transferred himself out of the camp at the time or had been digitally copied someplace else or whatever like it would be real easy to bring toby jones back for armin zola because we didn't see the combat robot that he built for himself he's just a voice on a computer from you know, the 1970s first correction i am space <laughs> all right after that we have our big bad really for this one which was alexander pierce alexander pierce was introduced in nick fury versus shield number three in august 1988 and created by bob harass and paul neary he was a shield agent he has never been a World Security Council member member, or any other high-ranking world leader, ambassador, or anything. He does become the leader of the Secret Avengers, uh, specifically of Team Black in the comic books, but that doesn't make him like on par with anything more than maybe Maria Hill as a, as a, someone who answers to Fury later. Other than having a comic book character, that is literally all the mcu version shares with the with his comic book counterpart is a name you think they probably just picked him because he's he's there he's present in the comics he's got a good strong name 
and they wanted yeah. to give Robert Redford someone believable to play. I mean, they could have picked Clay Quartermain. They could have picked uh, any of the other Howling Commandos they didn't utilize in the first Captain America movie and just aged him up with Fury. Like, literally, they could have picked anybody to be the World Security Council member who is actually a Hydra member and called him that. That's it. Mm-hmm. All right, so now, out of the bad guys, let's move on to some good guys. We have Sharon Carter, or otherwise known as Agent 13. She was introduced in Tales of Suspense, number 65, in March 1966. Same book, same book as Batroc. Yep. She was always supposed to be a romantic love interest for Steve Rogers. And her earliest mission has her under attack from Batroc Reliever, which is exactly what this is. So kudos for to the Russos for putting... Batrock the Leaper and Sharon Carter in their opening movie as the as a homage or Easter egg to the fact that they both appeared in the same comic book at the same time. In the books, she dies in Captain America number 233 and is later revived with the fake death trope in Captain America number 444. Uh, gotta love that. Gotta love the non-permanent death thing. Yeah, I know, right? Like, no, no, she wasn't dead. We just faked it so that she could go do undercover stuff in secret. She was pretending. She slept it off. She's fine. Yeah. It's like we totally didn't watch a movie where that literally hinged for on one of the main characters faking his death. When, like, I don't know about you, but if I took three massive sniper rifle rounds to the back that blew out through my chest, I'm not faking my death. I'm not having any last words. Or anything else. Well, and where's that bulletproof vest that he was rocking in the Avengers? <laughs> yeah, right? Oh my god. Uh, I love the fake death trope, but at the same time, it does annoy me. I only like the fake death trope when used appropriately and not too much. Yes. Alright, so now someone who has never needed the fake death trope. Sam Wilson, aka The Falcon. Introduced in Captain America number 117 in September 1969 by Lee and Gene Colon. He uses mechanical wings to fly, defend, and attack, just like his uh, movie counterpart. However, he also has limited telepathic and empathic control over birds in the books. It's not stated very well if he's like a mutant or some sort of like human mutate which in the books is is a different like they are different like spider-man is a human mutate not a mutant anyway that that distinction aside it's unclear as what he is on that part and it doesn't really come into play all that often these days they like to rely more on his uh combat expertise and soldier background and all that stuff except that he wasn't a soldier his original like, Line was actually just a, a social worker who happened to kind of get involved in stuff. One of the big things about Sam Wilson here is that he is the first black American superhero in mainstream comic books. And one of the few that doesn't just have black in the name, too. Yes. Yeah, they didn't They didn't call him Black Panther or uh, Black Lightning. They didn't just rely on his african-americanness to sell the book he was a person who 
who's he was a person who was black, not He's not a black superhero. He is a superhero yes. that happens to also be black. Yes. Yes. Precisely. And his the team working like Gene thought it was very important for that especially Gene and Lee both thought it was important at the time. It's weird for Lee is this champion of human rights, but he also turns around and says, I want a Fu Manchu character or I'm going to make an offensive French character. Like it's a little all over the board. Yeah. So through the 1970s, the Falcon and Captain America, that was a they were a duo. So that book was Captain America and the Falcon, especially for issues 134 to 192 and 194 to 222. So basically from February 1971 through June 1978. So like the decade of the 70s chunk, but it still operated under the copyright as Captain America. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to have that first appearance of the of Sam Wilson as the Falcon in my comic collection as we speak. And nice just to see like I, I can imagine seeing that cover back in the 70s would have been impactful. Because it's just, here he is, right here on the front of the cover. He has a whole cover spread to himself. And it's like, enter the Falcon, or Mm -hmm. introducing the Falcon. Super cool. Yeah, it really is. And that that would have been such such a boon for people of color to finally have at least someone. They can go out, they can pick up something of entertainment and go, That looks like I'm I'm in this. I'm represented somehow in some way. Especially at a time when the entire world seems to be hell-bent on making sure that you aren't represented and you aren't heard. Much like sometimes today. Mm. But anyway, getting off that soapbox real quick. One of the, um, one of the big ones. Yes, yeah, so we gotta talk about the big guy. Bucky Barnes, a.k.a. the Winter Soldier. Introduced in Captain America, this would have been volume four. Number one, in January 2005 by Ed Burrow Baker and Steve McNiven. That story that they they tell in this gets translated pretty well from the book to the screen. He's captured and determined KIA by his allies. Bucky is transformed into the Winter Soldier by Russians and used as an assassination weapon all through the Korean War and Vietnam and all up through the Cold War. Yeah, they freeze him and they bring him back out for major, major things. Yep. Uh, I have to I have to say too that the Ed Brubaker Captain America art is some of my favorite across the comics. Mm-hmm. Now this is and this is a good stuff because again this is at a time when the Avengers have been disassembled when all this is happening. So you've got a, a, a shakeup in the world of comic books and then for Captain America personally, so he's already lost a couple of Avengers in do uh, during the events of the disassembly and now you throw in oh yeah your best friend from the war that you thought died and that death has been haunting you for the last 40 years well hey guess what man he's alive and he's killing people for the russians like let's just compound all of your problems into one thing yeah now of course where the movie deviates it from the comic book is like the Red Skull, he's a major player in the book, and as is the Cosmic Cube, neither of which are in this movie whatsoever. Yeah, the Cube's on Asgard, and the Red Skull is, well, we find out later where the Red Skull is, but he's not on Earth. Yeah, 
one of the things about Bucky is that his death had been used to explain why the Marvel Universe had virtually no like young sidekicks anymore. Because, as I think Lee put it, no responsible hero wants to endanger a minor in similar fashion. So, one of the reasons why we saw a die-off of Marvel kid sidekicks. Whereas DC just kept turning out Robins every ten years. Yeah... That it's it's I think it is a little problematic on DC's part where they're like, oh, yeah, something horrible and traumatic happened to this Robin. Just give him another one. It'll be fine. (laughs) And uh, as a fun bit here, last bit, Ed Brubaker, he makes a cameo as a scientist working on the Winter Soldier during one of the flashbacks. Must have been cool as an artist to see what you put to paper coming to life on the big screen. Yeah. Yeah. That and not just getting that but being to get involved in it personally i mean like i guess we could say the same thing for lee but at this point he's contractually obligated to be there but no one had to invite burra baker to do this because we all credit lee yeah but it was i mean it is brubaker's art i mean it's his art from that storyline that's becoming the movie you know because and as we were, as we should remember, it wasn't Lee who made Bucky. Mm-hmm. Um, that one was uh, Simon. That was Simon and Kirby because Lee didn't get to be involved on the com- Captain America comics until issue number three. So, and unfortunately, you know, I think by the time of this movie, I think both of them had passed on. But and it's but it's so it's Brewer Baker's story that brings Bucky back, right? Because at this point. It was established that Bucky doesn't get to come back. It's the Bucky clause known in the uh, comic book world. Mm-hmm. And now Bucky's back. And that's thanks to Burbaker and McNiven. So yeah, I think it's awesome that someone had at least the foresight to be like, hey, guy who made all this happen. Do you want to come in? <laughs> I think we got a lab coat with your name on it. Here you go. And lastly, I, I do have one, I guess, soapbox. Real, my real world connection, right? Something I'm supposed to do at the end of these all the time. Is the still current debate of freedom versus security. This movie highlights that to the uh, ridiculous, outrageous nth degree by having literal flying gunships that can snipe people at seemingly random and calling that protection, calling that freedom, utilizing fear as a weapon to keep you in line. Naturally, our world is not so grandiose to have those ideas literally plopped out before you, and we have to think about them a little bit more. You know, at the end of the day, I know which side of the history I'm on and will always be on, and it will be against people who think authoritarianism is the way to go. And I will stand with people who stand and fight for other people to have the same rights and privileges as myself. Absolutely. Yeah, it's important. It's important to remember that safety should not come at the expense of your personal rights. You should not have to say, you know, you shouldn't have to stick to a tight curfew or, you know, be willing to present way more personal information about yourself to the people that are supposed to be keeping you safe in order to guarantee yourself protection. As a human, you should be automatically entitled to a set amount of rights. And it isn't it isn't in the best interest of people to give up those rights in order to give themselves a sense of security. Because if you if you're not able to act in any kind of way, 
how do you have freedom? And that's it. That's my that's my last bit. That's all I've got. Any final, final thoughts, Shenko? I think we've laid them all out on the table for this one. We've been here chatting for quite a bit. Uh, I think the last long episode, it's kind of nice to have a long episode where we're not just ragging on a movie. <laughs> <laughs> like this one we actually like so we're gonna talk about it and we have good things to say for an hour and a half oh yeah yeah <laughs> um no i mean i have my i have my couple of nitpicks with this movie but ultimately like i said it is one of my favorites to date um, i think these movies really peaked in phase two for me at least yeah i think you and i are going to be on opposite sides on the next one because up next is what is considered probably one of the low points for uh the phase two and overall infinity saga thor the dark world the movie that had such a opportunity to be amazing and that fell just a little bit but on that note have a great night night everyone as we all know when it comes to making a movie there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to make that movie magic happen and it is no different when making a podcast. Welcome to the credit section of the MCU Lorecast. Captain Shanko and I would like to personally thank the following for their incredibly hard work and faith in us to get this podcast rolling. Tom, the head of the Robots Radio Network, for hosting and mentoring. In 7 Legend of the Mass Effect Lorecast for inspiration. Genesis and Vervada of the Two Girls One Ship podcast for introducing us let's not a fellow tabletop gamer and friend for the amazing artwork pipe men a veteran and friend for the outstanding music our significant others for believing in and supporting us through this and you our fans without whom this would be a vanity project let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on apple or a rating on spotify and to quote Stan the Man, enough said. Hello, Vault Dwellers. Join me, Jackson, Sassy Lady Rover, Eric, and the Creator Maverick as we take topics from the Fallout universe and discuss them with other diverse individuals. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcast. You can follow us on YouTube. You can also find us on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it using at FalloutRTD. You can send us an email using FalloutRTD at gmail.com. Join us. The conversation has already started.